All right, all right. As you guys gather back, I'll run through some of the announcements. This week on Wednesday, we have uh, our Wednesday evening study here in the sanctuary. You shall be holy. Different than the song we just sang, but God's desire for the children of Israel. I'm going to attempt to look at chapters 21 through 23, getting through a lot of the uh, laws that God gave to Israel, not the Ten Commandments. We looked at that last week, but other laws that God had given to the children of Israel. And uh, maybe it'll be two chapters, maybe we'll get three, but I'm going to prepare for three. Uh, Calvary Magazine is available uh, out in the lobby or on the back table here in the sanctuary and some great articles in there, and I would encourage you to pick one up. I know how many copies we get, and I know how many copies remain. (laughs) Pick some up. I did count this last week. Let's see. Uh, Spring Fast coming up April 11th through the 15th. Easter is coming quick. Men's Retreat sign-up was last week, but I'm sure it's not too late because I believe they understand guys. We tend to get things late sometimes. I didn't. I signed up last Sunday, as I encourage you to do as well. If you want to drive up, since it's only 40 minutes up to Lake Geneva, 105 for the retreat, and I think it's 210 if you're staying on the grounds. Things are costing more. If you didn't catch Friday night's show with David Fiorazzo, who was here with us last week, and his uh, Stand Up for the Truth podcast with Stefan Broden, it's a really good interview. Stefan Broden is a black pastor doing ministry in the South and The guy was just, I was blown away by his brilliance. He is just very wise and right on board with uh, the values that we hold as well. And so it's a good podcast to listen to. I didn't give you the direct link, but all you have to do is look up standupforthetruth.com and you can find that information there. So that's good enough for the announcements. Next week is the first of the month, so Potluck Sunday. Not in your bulletin, but we've been doing it that way for... I don't know, 15, 16 years or so. Potluck Sunday, and you know what that means. Don't bring any food, no pot, you're out of luck. And (laughs) we want to be in luck next week with some good meals. All right, so we're going to get into our study, but I first want to pray for the offering given here. Uh, We have an agape box in the back. We do not pass plates or bags as we used to. But God provides for this fellowship in many different ways these days. And one way is through the agape box. Another way is through online giving. Another way is through check in the mail. But uh, we take none of these gifts lightly. And we want to ask God to bless the offertory that comes in uh, throughout the week. But we want to ask God's blessing upon the offertory. And also a blessing on the teaching of his word this day. So let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us. And again, Lord, the sun is shining. It's really a beautiful out after especially some very windy and rainy days that we've had this past week. And we see the grass greening and uh, trees beginning to bud. And we know that spring is coming. And Lord, we long for that, the growth, the new life that comes upon this earth. And we long for that in our own hearts, Lord, that you would bring growth and new life in our own hearts and fruit, Lord, that only you can provide through your spirit. We do ask, Lord, that you would bless the gifts given to this fellowship. We thank you, Father, for the provisions that you have given us, that we could be a church planted in this community this year in December, celebrating 30 years. So, Father, we do not take that lightly. We know, Lord, that through the love of people loving you and loving this place, that, Lord, provision has continued to come. And we thank you, Lord, for the gifts given. I pray, Lord, that you give us wisdom in their usage. And, Father, help us to continue to proclaim your word through the various different means that we have today. We pray your blessing upon these things. 
Bless us now, Lord, as we continue through this chronological journey through the Gospels, as we continue to learn about the life of Christ, his ministry that's given to us in the four Gospels. I pray, Lord, that you'd open our hearts, our minds to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to this church this day. We ask, Lord, in the name of Jesus, amen. So we're at chapter 10. Chapter 10 is how I've described these, the chronological journey through the Gospels, where I'm attempting to mesh all four Gospels into uh, the order in which they came and when Jesus ministered here on this earth. And we will discover, though, for a few weeks, we're going to be stuck, and it's not a bad place to be, in the Gospel of John. And we are at the end of the first year of Jesus' ministry, getting ready to begin the second year, the Galilean ministry. But John here is the one that describes some of these ending events in the first year of the ministry. So John chapter 2, chapter 3, even into chapter 4, not all of chapter 4, but most of chapter 4 will be concentrating on the gospel of John. So this week, chapter 2, next week, 3, possibly all of 3, I'm not sure. Uh, Then Easter is coming up, so we'll take a break and we'll look at the Passover and Easter celebration of our Lord's death, burial, and resurrection from the grave. And then we'll come back again into the Gospel of John as we continue our chronological journey through the Bible. In John 1, we left off a couple of weeks ago, we learned that Andrew and possibly John, the author of this Gospel, uh, they were disciples of John the Baptist, and John never names himself in his gospel. In fact, if you look up who's the author of the gospel of John, you'll find that there's a few different opinions, but most of the church theologians believe that it was John who wrote this gospel. He never wrote his name. He would refer himself as another disciple, the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, I like that one. We could all be that, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Or he would refer himself to the, this, or that disciple, never naming himself in the scripture. But when we combine some of the accounts and we find Peter involved and we know from the other gospels that John was there, it's easy to say, oh yeah, this was John. And so that's how I believe that for the majority believing that John is the author of this gospel, though he did not name himself. From chapter 1, we learned of John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, possibly James. That's another thing that's not named here, but James and John were brothers, and we often find them together in Scripture. In fact, we know that Peter, James, and John would form the inner circle of Christ, as it's been called. And so I believe James could be along with them at this time, though not named, as we get into chapter 2, we're going to see that these disciples were with Jesus when he was at the marriage feast in Cana, when he journeyed to Capernaum, and also when he returned to Jerusalem for that first Passover. It wasn't Jesus' first Passover, technically, because he's, you know, around 30 years old, it's believed at this time, and He had always attended the Passover feast, but this is the first Passover given to us in the Gospel of John, and it's how we come up with the three years of Jesus' ministry, as we'll see later, by counting the Passovers that John described to us in his Gospel. So today, I titled this message, He Knows Our Hearts, John chapter 2, we're going to see a wedding in Cana, in verses 1 through 12. A cleansing in Jerusalem, verses 13 through 17. A sign for the world, verses 18 through 22. And the first Passover, verses 23 through 25. I'm going to go ahead and uh, read our first two verses, and then we'll get into the teaching of God's Word. John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So we learned last time in chapter 1 that John gave us four days that we saw 
where from John the Baptist introducing Jesus Christ as uh, the Lamb of God ministering and answering questions. So we have day one of John answering questions, John the Baptist answering questions. Day two, John the Baptist introducing Jesus to the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Day three, John tells Andrew and John, behold the Lamb. And John and Andrew begin to follow Jesus that very day. And day four And it brings us now on the third day, so three days after Nathaniel and Philip are called to be Jesus' disciples, we find that they go to this wedding feast in Canaan. And how wonderful to know that in the creation, at the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible tells us that God performed the very first marriage ceremony In Genesis 2, verses 21 through 25, where God brought Eve to Adam and joined them together as one flesh, the two becoming one flesh as husband and wife. And here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus attends a marriage celebration. And we learn from John's gospel that Jesus was there in the beginning with God himself in John 1, 3, for all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And now Jesus, seen publicly attending this marriage celebration. And Jesus had a word to say about marriage in Mark 10, verses 9 through 6, when he was questioned about marriage. He took the religious rulers back to the beginning. He took it back to Genesis chapter 2, where he said, Mark 10, 6 through 9, But from the beginning of the creation of God, God made them male and female. And for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two then shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus, as we go through the Gospels, will find that he does take a pretty strong stance on marriage And here we find he's attending a marriage celebration. How would you like that? Having a wedding, did you send an invitation to Jesus? We hope that we do, that as in a Christian wedding, that we acknowledge the presence of the Lord in our midst. In verses 3 through 5, we keep reading and we find a dilemma. It seemed to be a dilemma for Mary when it says, And when they had run out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, I don't know the voice inflection that Jesus used when talking to mom. Woman, what does my concern or your concern have to do with me? I don't think he was being rude to mom. In fact, he explained to her, my hour has not yet come. And we find as we go through the Gospel of John that Jesus would often talk about his hour or his time. And for the most part, toward the beginning of the Gospel of John, it's my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come. But then he would repeat this. Uh, throughout his gospel, seven or ten times, se- ten times, I want to say seven. Seven is a perfect number, but it's ten here. Ten times, my hour has not yet come, my hour had not yet come, or his hour had not yet come, describing him. The hour has come, and Jesus would even pray twice in John 12:27, save me from this hour. So the hour talked about Jesus and his mission of heading to the cross. And Jesus understood that by the beginning of the miracle here, that that timeline now would start. The clock was already ticking. Of course, Jesus had been birthed. But this would get people engaged in his ministry as unlike any other time before. He already had some disciples following him, but now it was not his select few disciples, but he would begin to gain recognition among the people there in Judea and Jerusalem and in the Galilee. I love it that Mary knew that she could take her concern 
to Jesus. Some scholars believe, and I have no reason to disagree with them, that Mary was concerned about this because this was a family wedding, and they had run out of wine. And uh, their weddings back then, by the way, they lasted seven days. So you'd have to have a lot of wine to keep things going, I guess. Uh, The way they did their weddings, it was a long celebration feast. They had run out, and it would be a disgrace to the family. But I love it that Mary took her concern to Jesus. She understood that she was able to cast her cares upon Jesus. And it's something the Bible tells us that we can do as well. In 1 Peter 5, 7, which tells us, Cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us. So as Mary took her concern to Jesus, so too should we. And what care, what anxiety, what concern could you possibly have and bring to Jesus that he could not answer? According to the word of God, when Jesus was teaching his disciples that it's very difficult for the rich to be saved because of their love of money, their love of wealth and that position. But Jesus merely said it's very difficult for the rich to be saved. And in the apostles' mind, the disciples' mind, they viewed that those who were rich, those had wealth, were blessed of God. So it kind of messed with their teaching. It wasn't biblical, but that's what they had grown up learning. So they asked the question, who then can be saved? And the Lord Jesus would answer in Matthew 19, 25, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Who then can be saved? If all things are possible with God, then why do we not bring our concerns to Jesus? To be like David in Psalm 55, 22 who wrote, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says, do it. So we pick up verses six through eight. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 to 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. So empty water pots. They were there to provide washing for the guests before the meal. Ceremonial washing, purification was a big deal for the Jews. In Mark 7, verses 3 through 4, the Pharisees, the Jews, did not eat unless they washed their hands in a special way. So I would just advise you that washing before you have a meal is a wise thing to do. Hey, what do we teach our kids, right? To wash your hands? Uh, No, they run off and they get them damp. They don't actually wash them, but they come back in and act like they did and they go ahead and eat anyways. They get better as they grow up. But I would suggest that washing before we eat is a good thing. But they had ceremonial washing. They would have somebody pour running water, which much like we see the old movies of doctors with running water coming down and dripping off their elbows. There was a way to properly wash. And these 20 to 30 gallon water pots, if 20, it would be 120 gallons of water. If 30, 120. 80 gallons of water that they would have. And the servants knew exactly what the Lord commanded them to do. They obediently followed. They didn't know why. Fill up the water pots. Okay. They filled them up to the brim. And then he said, now take some of it and serve it to the master of ceremonies. Now they knew that they had put water in those pots. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 to trust in the Lord with all your heart do not lean on to your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path so from the servant's perspective if they ended up serving water to the master of ceremony they could have pointed to Jesus and said he did it he told us to do it we're just following what he said to do you brought me water well we're out of wine and Jesus said give him some water But they obeyed, and 
are we obediently following the command of Jesus? Sometimes we have the Lord speak to us in just a special way as an individual, through his word, through other people. Maybe it's a confirmation of his word and other people, but we have a surety that the Lord has spoken to our hearts. And sometimes we follow that command, other times we do not. And far too often we will lean on our own understanding and it will keep us from following the commands of Jesus when we lean on our own understanding instead of trusting in and acknowledging Jesus that he might direct our paths. I've discovered that as I take those steps of faith that sometimes might seem unexplainable to other people, but as I take those steps of faith that the Lord will continue to reveal, give revelation as I follow that command. And I hope that you have discovered similar things as well. So we find in verses 9 through 10, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior but you have kept the good wine until now. So sometimes, as obedient servants of Christ, we get to see a bit of the bigger picture at play. The servants did what Jesus told him to do, and they knew what they had put in the pots, they knew what they drew out, but the master of, of the feast exclaimed that it was the very best, most superior wine that he had tasted. In fact, he shared with the bridegroom because he knew the routine. Put out the good stuff first, and when they're drunk, give them the bad stuff. They won't know any difference. He knew the difference. In fact, everything that Jesus does is superior. And Jesus talked about his ministry as being a new wine. It could not fit in the old system of Judaism. As in Luke 5, 37 and 38, Jesus would say, no one puts new wine in old wineskins or else the new wine will burst in the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put in new wineskins and both are preserved. So I'm not an expert on wine at all, but I understand the wineskin, the new wineskin is elastic. It can stretch, it can breathe. They put the wine in that permeates. I may have said that wrong, but as it expands and contracts, that wineskin can move with it. But if it's an old wineskin, when the wine begins to expand, it will just blow it out, and then you lose everything. So wine once in a wineskin, water the rest of the time, and you can be like the cowboys in the Old West and carry your wineskin, or uh, not your wineskin, but your water skin then at that point. But know that it's a new wine, a new ministry. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Everything that Jesus does is superior. Now verses 11, 12 tells us, verse 11, this is the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. and the, He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So this is the beginning of signs. So if ever you're in a supermarket line, maybe around this time of the year, Passover, Easter's coming up, they'll have some articles still about Jesus on the supermarket shelves there as you're checking out. I'm sure we'll see something. But I was in line many years ago and I saw the infant miracles of Jesus. And I grabbed the little thing to see what it had to say. It was all worthless reading, but I wanted to see what was being said of Jesus. And they talked about him being a little boy and turning clay pigeons into live birds and such. And John tells us this is the beginning. It started right here. So if you're ever in that supermarket line, if you're talking with somebody in social media and they're talking about the other miracles of Jesus that he had when he was a baby or a young boy, say, no, John chapter 2, verse 11 says, this is the beginning. 
Simeon is the Greek word. It's, it does mean sign, uh, a token, a miracle. And he began, it was manifested. He began to lay bare. He began to uncover the reality of who he was through this miracle. It brought glory. According to the word of God, he manifested his glory. Doxa, his fame began to be known at that point. And the disciples, pistuo is the Greek word, they believed, they put their faith in him. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his doxa, we beheld his glory. And the glory of one, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he heads up to Capernaum. We will discover in the second year primarily, but he's already making his way up there. This is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. We've, Lily and I and others, they're not here in the church anymore, but Lily and I have been to the north side of Capernaum. They have unearthed the sanctuary in Capernaum. And uh, it had, they believe, is the original foundation stones. And then a sanctuary had been tore down and rebuilt after the time of Christ. They believe the foundation stone is the foundation stone of the time of Christ. And uh, we've sat in the ruins of that. No roof over it or anything, but the walls are up. And, you know, you have the columns and some walls and divided rooms and stuff. And we sat in there and um, Pastor Phil Ballmeyer of Calvary Chapel Oak Grove taught a message that day that we were there at Capernaum. Pretty cool to see the ruins, a place where Jesus would make his home base. We'll find out that in year number two, more so. But this would become his home base while he ministered in the Galilee. And those who went with him, Mom, Mary, his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his disciples, again, I listed them earlier, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, possibly James at this point. So Jesus had said, before we move on to our next point, in this world, John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So what better reason to cast all of our cares upon the Lord and may it be so that we would continually cast our cares, our anxieties upon Jesus in every situation. The cleansing of the temple, we're going to read from John 2, verses 13 through 17. We also find Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19 also talk about Jesus cleansing the temple. I'll mention this again in a moment. But in verse 13, it tells us, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the first recorded Passover of Jesus' ministry, and by counting these Passovers, John 2.13, John 6.4, John 11.55, we have three Passovers that Jesus attended. And so he actually began before the first Passover that he intended, the last John 11:55 would lead him to the cross. But here's how we get the three plus years of ministry by counting the Passovers given to us in the Gospel of John, John 2:13, John 6:4, John 11:55. Now it was mandatory for every male to attend the feast days. Deuteronomy 16:16. 16, 16. Three times a year, all males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. The feast of unleavened bread, that's Passover, the feast of weeks and the feast of tabernacles. They shall not appear before the Lord empty handed. So it was mandatory for the Lord to be there. And we find that Jesus always fulfilled the commands of his father. In fact, in Matthew 5:17, he said, do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus had to be there. And they went to the Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also called Passover, which takes place on the first week, or the first day of the feast, week. So Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're given a week there, but that very first day is Passover, we celebrate it this year on April 15th. We know it as Good Friday. 
And Exodus 12, 6 says, They shall keep it, the lamb, until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And so it's interesting in Exodus 12, when we are given the account of the first Passover and also the instructions, God tells Moses, tell the children of Israel, every household take a lamb. If the household's too small, uh, join other households. But everyone take a lamb for each household or a combination of households. And they were, though, to kill the lamb. They went from plural to singular because this ultimately is fulfilled in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And two years later, after this Passover, he would offer his life there upon the cross. Well, he found the temple, verses 14 through 16. Those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, the money changers, doing business. And he made a whip out of cords. He drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So it's not the temple proper. The temple proper, only the priest could minister in the holy place. In the holy of holy, only the high priest once a year. That's the temple proper, but we're in the temple grounds, the temple area. It's believed to be the court of the Gentiles where non-Jewish people could come to worship God. And it appears that they turned this place into a flea market in a sense. What they've probably done is because people had traveled from far distances to come to these feast days, they began offering pre-certified, it's always to have uh, good pre-certified meats, right? Uh, they began offering pre-certified by the priest animals that could readily be sacrificed to the Lord. But of course, you know, they've been certified by the priest. Everybody's got to get a little cut here and there. And so you had the people selling the animals. They're taking a little bit of it. The priest took a little when they said their words over it. The money exchangers, you had to come with an offering. Every man had to pay a shekel. It had to be the Jewish, Israeli coin, not the Roman coin. So they had to exchange it. Of course, when you go to another country, exchange your money, they could have charged you a little bit. And so it became what Jesus described as a house of merchandise. In Mark 11:17, at a different, I believe, a different cleansing of the temple, and I'll explain that in a moment, Jesus again would clear it out and he said, is it not written that my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Here at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus had made a whip of cords. He drove out those who were buying and selling out of the temple. And it gives us a glimpse of Jesus' mighty power. In Malachi 3 verse 1, it tells us, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So the beginning of Malachi 3.1 refers to the messenger, John the Baptist. And then the second half of that verse, then the Lord, referring to Jesus Christ, suddenly coming into the temple, making a whip of cords, driving the money changers, the buyers, the sellers out of there. I'm sure it was quite shocking. In fact, the disciples, verse 17 says, the disciples then remembered that it was written, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. This comes from Psalm 69 Verse 9, where King David prophesied of the Messiah, because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who have reproached you have fallen upon me. Through the cleansing of the temple, Jesus' authority is revealed to those who are around there. It also triggered the hatred of many of the religious rulers. From this time forward, they would seek to kill him. These reproaches 
ultimately refers, though, to the reproaches of our sins being placed upon Jesus there on the cross. As Paul wrote in Romans 15, 3, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Remember Jesus, before he went to the cross, he prayed to the Father, if possible, this cup could pass from me. Any other way other than the Lord drinking the cup, the cup of the cross, his death upon the cross. But he obediently went to the cross where our sins were placed upon him there. He paid the price of our sin. So some teach that there was only one cleansing of the temple and that John purposely threw this out of chronological order at the beginning of his gospel. I don't believe that. I believe that Jesus cleansed the temple twice at the beginning of his ministry and then at the end of the ministry. I believe there at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he as the Son of God cleansed his Father's house. But the second cleansing, remember what I read from uh, Mark. I got to get back to it. Mark eleven seventeen. Jesus said, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations. Now he was quoting the word of God to them there. But my house as the high priest, Jesus made sure that the people were adhering to the law of God. Now one might think that after Jesus had this great show of strength, those who truly sought him to come to him in Matthew 21, 14 at the second cleansing. So the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He turned the temple from a den of thieves, a house of merchandise, into a house of prayer and a house of healing for all nations, all people. That's what the church should be today, that we would be a house of prayer, a house of healing. But it's not us personally doing that, of course, but the Spirit of God working through us and the work of Jesus Christ in this world. So a sign for the world, John 2, verses 18 through 22 18 through 20, it says, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. So up to this time, it's the second temple. So the first temple Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Ezra and Nehemiah, I was trying to think of Ezra's name. Ezra and Nehemiah and others came and they rebuilt the altar and the foundation stones. They rebuilt the temple ultimately and restored. That's the second temple. When Herod the Great came on the scene, Herod the Great was king over the Jews, but he was not a Jewish man. He was an Edomite. So he was not from the tribe of David. He's from the wrong nation, from the wrong line within the nation, not from Judah, not from David. But he tried to gain favor with the children of Israel. And Herod the Great was a builder. And one of the projects that he set out upon was the remodeling and expansion of the second temple. And up to this point, Herod the Great had been dead for a number of years. He died in 4 B.C., but 46 years, they remind Jesus, which is interesting, 46 years they've been working on this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? Come on. 46 years. It would actually take a little more than 80 years to complete the temple. They would complete it, I believe it was 66 AD or just a little earlier than that. At the completion of the temple, I've read historically, it's not in my notes, but suddenly there was 18,000 unemployed temple builders. 18,000. Now think about it. The stones, Robinson's Arch, it's the second course of Robinson's Arch that's been dubbed there in Jerusalem. They estimate the length of that stone, 45 feet, six inches long. That's the width of our church here, a little longer. So big stones. The heaviest stone is estimated of weighing 570 tons. When we were in Israel, the 
tour guide said, we don't even know how they moved them. And yet they did. And the evidence is there because the foundation stones uh, from, this, from Solomon's day until uh, King Herod, the foundation stones are still there. And they're just massive. So yeah, 18,000 men, not surprising. They had wonderful ways to move that stuff, to quarry it and move it some two miles and to get it into its place. But Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple. In fact, John explains to us verses 21 and 22. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So they logged what Jesus had said, didn't really make application until he resurrected from the grave. It's like, oh, he wasn't talking about the physical building. He was talking about the temple of his body. Now this will come up when Jesus is on trial in Mark 14, 57 through 59. Some would rise up. They would bear false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. Now, it appears that they added the another here because we don't read that in John's gospel. But in the New Testament Greek, there are two Greek words for another, alas and heteros. Alas is another of the same kind. Heteros is another of the different kind. Those who are bearing false witness said he's got to raise up another of the same kind. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical building. He was talking about the temple of his body. Then properly, it would be heteros, uh, another of a different kind. Not the physical temple, but the temple not made with men's hands, the temple of his body. Two years later, the disciples then remembered and believed the prophetic word of God. And this goes right along with the word of God itself, where Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit, in John 14:25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends in my name, he will teach you all things and he will bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. So they, you know, they saw it, they heard him speak. But it wasn't until he died and resurrected from the grave that it clicked the work of the Holy Spirit, making sense of this event. And it caused, the disciples already believed at this point, but I think it just caused them to go deeper into their faith. Have you ever had any moment like that where the Lord has spoken to you? You're a believer. You love Jesus. Uh, you read his word. You serve him in his church. You do other things outside of the church that people recognize you as a believer of Jesus Christ, but there's an event that takes place in your life that causes you to deepen your faith, to even believe more than you have believed before. Certainly it happens. And though the temple of his body was destroyed Jesus did raise it up in three days. We'll celebrate that in just a few weeks here during the resurrection week and the celebration of Easter and Passover. Our final point in the Passover, the first Passover, as far as in John's gospel, John 2, 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now, the signs, uh, Simeon, we already looked at that word earlier, Simeon. I like how one of the theologians said about this, when John referred to Simeon, sign, he was not just simply referring to the miraculous event that took place at this point, but here's how he said, in context, such as in John 2.23, it may be rendered as a miracle with great meaning. A miracle with great meaning. They saw the signs which he had done, but John doesn't give us any of these signs. They were miracles of great meaning. It caused many of the people to believe in Jesus. But John only records seven signs, seven simeons, seven miracles for us in his gospel. 
We have the water turned into wine, which we already looked at in John 2, uh, 1 through 11. We have the healing of the nobleman's son in John 4, 46 through 54. We have the healing of a man who had an infirmity for 38 years in John 5, verses 1 through 15. The feeding of the 5,000, which all four gospels record, but here in John 6, 5 through 14. Jesus walking on water, John 6, 16 through 21. The healing of a man born blind, John 9, 1 through 12. The raising of Lazarus, John 11, 1 through 45. John only records seven signs, seven miracles in his gospel. But John believed that these seven were sufficient to cause someone to believe in Jesus. In fact, he would say at the end of his gospel, John 20, verses 30 and 31, Truly, Jesus did many other signs, many other simeons in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John said seven are sufficient, and here's the seven. And so we'll discover those as we go through. So they saw the signs that Jesus had done. Many believed in him, but then there's an odd thing as he closes out chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So why didn't Jesus commit himself to those who believed in him? He knew all men. He knew their hearts. He knew that in the heart of man, according to the word of God, that it's desperately wicked, as we'll look at in a moment. But at the, after the feeding of the 5,000, on the very next day, John chapter 6, verse 64, Jesus said, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and those who would betray him. He knew their hearts. He knew that they had false profession of faith. Their belief, their faith wasn't real. It wasn't legitimate. And John 6, 66, great numbers there in the Bible, 666. It fits perfect. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus refused the people's desire to make him king. And so it says in John 6, 66, from that time, many disciples went back and walked with him no more. He knew their hearts. Perhaps that's why here in the beginning of his ministry, though they believed, he knew what was in the heart. In Hebrews 4.13, it tells us, there is no creature hidden from his sight, that all things were naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And what I already referred to in Jeremiah 17 9 and 10, speaking of our hearts, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to the way, according to the fruit of his doings. So that's quite frightening to contemplate. I, the Lord, test the heart. Oh, Lord. But listen to what the Lord says. He who tests our hearts knows that they are desperately wicked. In Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, this is what the Lord says to us. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And knowing our hearts... Jesus willingly gave his life upon the cross that he might give to us a future and a hope. Today we've seen in this gospel, it's chapter 10 of our chronological journey through the gospel that this is going to happen sometimes. Today we found ourselves in John chapter 2. And we have seen a wedding in Cana in verses 1 through 12. And there we learn that to be like Mary that we would continually cast all of our cares, all of our anxieties upon the Lord. In the cleansing of the temple, we find that 
there in the temple, but also the church of Jesus Christ today. The true church of Jesus Christ. That churches across this land, across the world, they are to be houses of prayer and houses of healing for all nations. Jesus gave a sign, and they would continually ask for signs. Show us a sign. They'll ask that again. But Jesus' sign, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. At the beginning of his ministry, he said, the resurrection from the dead, that is the sign that will show you that I am the Messiah, the Son of God. And at the first Passover, Jesus, knowing our hearts, even though he knows the condition of our hearts, the things that we have done, the things that we should have done that we don't do, he still gave his life upon the cross that he might save us and give us a future and a hope. Let's go ahead and stand up as I close in prayer. We're going to lead in one last song of worship. Pastor Kevin's going to be down front. If anyone has a prayer need or if you'd like to come forward and just kneel and pray, uh, we have prayer benches and uh, pews over here that are open for prayer. But let's go ahead and pray and just worship our Lord. Father, we thank you for your word, for what it teaches us. Thank you, Lord, for the truths that are found in your word. Thank you, Jesus, that we can cast our cares upon you, our anxieties upon you. And no doubt, Lord, there are some maybe here, maybe listening on the radio, maybe, Lord, watching through social media. Maybe at a later time they hear or watch this message. No matter the time, Lord, when you speak, I pray, Lord, that they would respond today that we would cast our cares upon you, cast our anxieties upon you, knowing that you care for us, knowing also, Lord, that you gave your life upon the cross, that you died for us, that we might not only be saved, but, Lord, to give us a future and a hope. I pray now, Lord, that you would bless our last song of worship and this time of waiting upon you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.